This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 1st, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, David Grimm is up first with tales of Yeti and Sasquatch DNA, or not, and Allison McIntosh talks with us about what a new database of modern bone measurements from women can reveal about prehistoric farming women, their jobs, and their incredibly strong arms. Now we have Dave Grimm, online news editor. He's here to talk to us about Yetis and Sasquatches. I actually have trouble saying Sasquatch. I think it's because it's a made-up thing. <laughs> so why are we talking about these fanciful creatures, Dave? Well, you know, these uh, these are animals that uh, have been part of human folklore for a long time, uh, not just in places like uh, North America, where we call them uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch, but in places like uh, Tibet and the Himalayas, where you might... Uh, uh, more likely find them referred to as Yeti or Abominable Snowman. And just for anybody who doesn't know what these creatures are supposed to be, these are sort of like giant... Hominids. Hairy humans. Maybe they're white, maybe they're brown. Sort of depends on where uh, where you supposedly spot them. And, you know, over the years, people have claimed to not just have seen these creatures, but actually have collected samples from them, usually hair samples. But this new study also deals with uh, putative bones and teeth and things like that. As well. And the scat. Yes. And there's <laughs> scat as well. Preserved scat. So the reason we're talking about this is because, yes, people are bringing new scientific tools to bear on the, uh, what, the evidence that has been purported to show the existence of Yeti in this case. So they use DNA analysis um, on some of these samples. What did they find? Well, so, you know, they, they collected a bunch of samples. And actually, one of the researchers was working uh, with the production crew of a UK documentary called Yeti or Not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, from all that, she got a lot of the samples we've been talking about, the hair samples, the bone, the scat, and things like that. And all they... Uh, uh, the team analyzed 24 samples 
Uh, nine of those were purported to be from Yeti, and the rest were were uh, known to belong to various uh, bears that inhabit the region, including the Himalayan brown bear, the Tibetan brown bear, and the black bear. And the reason they looked at the bears is because a previous study that had been done a couple years ago, which, Sarah, if you remember, you and I actually talked about on the podcast, um, was trying to do a similar thing with the Sasquatch in North America. And that had sort of come up with the conclusion that some of these samples seem to be bear samples. Um, and in fact, some of the samples they analyzed were actually putative Yeti samples, which also indicated those samples were actually bear samples. So the team wanted to see how closely these samples actually uh, resembled bears that actually right. live in I the region. The, the early Yeti sample, one of them, a stretch of the DNA they thought was maybe a polar bear, which also is very <laughs> That would unlikely. be weird, yeah. That would be weird. And actually some people <laughs> thought, well, maybe there's some sort of hybrid mm-hmm. polar bear, black bear, uh, or brown bear living in the Himalayas, which would also be interesting, but that was sort of inconclusive as well. So what they did here was they said, well... Let's, you know, rule out Yeti, but also let's figure out what's going on with these bears. Right. And so what they did was they looked at the mitochondrial DNA of these samples. And this is the DNA that lives inside the mitochondria of cells or the powerhouses of cells. It's a little bit easier to analyze. Also, uh, it's passed down from uh, the mothers only And they did a sort of a a very thorough analysis of the mitochondrial DNA of these samples. What they found was that of the nine quote unquote Yeti samples, eight actually turned out to be from bears. And the final one was not from a Yeti. It was from a dog. (laughs) Did they learn that this is kind of the interesting thing, you know, besides ruling out Yetis. They did learn something about the distribution of bears or the heritage of bears in this region. Well, right. So, you know, debunking aside, you know, first thing they can say is none of these samples are from a mysterious creature we don't know anything about. They're all from animals we know about. But, you know, it's not just a waste of time. If you consider debunking a waste of time, I mean, there's actually some interesting science going on here, too, because these are the first full mitochondrial genomes we have for the Himalayan brown bear, for the Himalayan black bear. And that could help scientists figure out because there's a little bit of confusion in the area about how closely these bears are related to each other what their common ancestor is and things like that and so having this genetic data could sort of help fill in the evolutionary history of bears in this region and going back to the study uh, from 2014 on the north american version of this bigfoot did they find any like elusive creatures when they looked through there no, you know, they, they didn't find any Sasquatches. And again, you know, it was mostly bears. Some of these samples belong to horses, uh, dogs again, and one actually came from a person. <laughs> they started out with 57 samples in this 2014 study. They were only able to analyze 37 of them because a lot of them actually turned out not to be biological samples. But even of the 37, there were a few that were unable to be sequenced because of, of the condition of the sample. So those holding out hope for for Sasquatch may still have something to cling on. They could say, well, you know, there was a few samples, they were inconclusive. Uh, but, you know, for, as far as the scientists are concerned, we still haven't found any genetic evidence of these elusive and mysterious uh, and probably imaginary creatures. <laughs> well, this was published in the same journal in 2014 and now in 2017. So we have to keep an eye on them in case they finally get what they're looking for. That's right. <laughs> okay, Dave. 
We're done with Yetis and Sasquatches. What else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got an interesting story about the first study that's taking a look at the practice of placentophagy. This is a uh, sort of, yeah, this is a practice that is gaining in popularity, apparently, of uh, women eating uh, their placentas after birth. There has been some speculation that maybe this is good for things like postpartum depression and other things. And this study is the first to sort of take a hard look at whether that, uh, whether eating a placenta actually confers any sort of uh, biological benefits. Uh, we've also got a story about why carnivores have such weird faces. So speaking of bears and, and other animals, um, why they have the sort of interesting markings that they do. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why the U.S. has banned most government scientists from travel to Cuba and what impact that's likely to have on the thawing uh, of Cuba-U.S. scientific relations. Also, the latest in the case of a geologist who's been accused of sexually harassing a grad student in Antarctica 18 years ago. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Credible.com. Student loans can just wipe you out if you don't get a handle on them. How do you do that? Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. And using their simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. Plus, you could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com slash science, answer a few quick questions, and right away you get real rates, not a range of rates, from multiple lenders. Credible.com is completely free to use, and checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, our listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash science. Pay off your student loans faster or lower your monthly payment. Just go to Credible.com slash science. Allison McIntosh and colleagues write this week in Science Advances about a very interesting question. What happened to women's labor as they moved from a nomadic lifestyle to an agricultural lifestyle in prehistoric times? Men's bones tell us one story. With less roaming and a more sedentary lifestyle, their legs got less of a workout as they settled down. The story written in the bones of the women during the first 6,000 years of agriculture is less clear. Part of the reason has been that there's no modern data set of the average woman's bones, athlete, couch potato, what have you. So as part of this research, Allison and colleagues created such a data set and were able to compare old bones to new ones. So Allison, how did you come across this question? Why are you asking about changes in bone in women from prehistoric times? I'll start with the background because that kind of is how this whole paper developed. So during my PhD, I did a bunch of work looking at reconstructing behavior through uh, the first 6,000 years of agriculture. And mm -hmm. so that's where this, I sort of collected all this data from prehistoric farmers, and we saw really nice strong trends in the males of really strong legs at the start of farming, 
And then as they became more sedentary, uh, they got nice trends towards just weaker leg bones through time. The thing was that the women didn't follow this pattern. So they didn't change significantly through time. There wasn't this nice decline as they became more sedentary. So it was really difficult to kind of interpret how women's behavior was changing because we didn't have, it sort of didn't look like it was changing. And how do you know that it's a behavioral effect, that behavior is what is giving you this result? Right. So obviously our genetics play a role in what our bones look like. But what we focus on particularly is how your bones adapt in your lifetime to what you're mm-hmm. doing. And we know from work with living athletes that other people have done, for example, in tennis players where you're using your one arm and not the other. So yeah. the gen- the genetics are the same. The diet is the same. It's really just that <laughs> just loading two that's arms, different. Right? It's the yeah. two arms of the same person. Yeah. And you'll see much stronger bones on the arm that they're holding the racket with. Um, okay. There's many other studies, but those are really uh, give really good indicator of the loading being important, not just genetic differences between people mm-hmm. or whatever. So we know that there is some impact of of how you load your bones on what they look like in your life. And so we saw these nice trends in men where their leg bones were similar in strength to modern cross-country runners as early farmers and then kind of declined through time to look more like modern sedentary people. And when you say modern sedentary people, are you saying couch potatoes or like the average? No, just sort of recreationally average non-athletes. So we're not seeing this in the women. Uh What's going on? There's no data from living women to compare them to. So you're kind of stuck trying to interpret women's behavior by comparing them to the men. Of course, they don't have as strong of bones as the men. So then it becomes difficult to determine whether that's a behavioral difference or just a biological difference. What do you mean there's no data from living women? What does that mean? So the way that we quantify bone strength, so the the actual kind of property that we use that tells us bone strength or bone shape or thickness or whatever, nobody's published those data from living women. Um, So that's one of the aims of the study was to provide some of that type of data for other people to then start being able to use. Can you talk a little bit about the time period here? You said the first 6,000 years of agriculture. Can you put that on the, you know, now is the year 2000 and this would be the year? So the the region that we focused in on in the prehistoric collections is a region of Central Europe along the Danube River. It's not a global sample. It's It's farmers in this sort of rich agricultural region around the Danube. And agriculture started in that region around 5500 BC. So that's about 7,000 years ago. And in the paper, the earliest prehistoric people were coming around 5300 BC. So they're pretty close to the when we first start seeing farming Mm. in this region. Wow. So where do the bones come from? Are they graves, caves? Um, So various institutions, they were originally excavated from cemeteries. Why would they take bones? Is it part of development? Um, It it varies with each cemetery, but a lot of the time they'll be, you unexpectedly come across them in some kind of construction project and then they need to be curated. Well, let's talk about your finding then now that you you have a really good question. You know, why can't we see this trend in women? Well, we don't know anything about modern women bones so much. So let's, what did, what did you find when you looked back? 
Well, one of the things we thought about why we might not be seeing change in women's legs the way that we are seeing in men is that potentially women are doing just a lot more manual labor. And so most of what they're doing might be loading their arms and not their legs. One of the aims of this paper was, well, let's look at their arms and we'll compare them to the arms of living athletes, for example, rowers who are mm-hmm. doing something with their arms. And also we wanted to see what they're doing with their arms relative to their legs. So even if you don't have particularly strong legs, are your arms really strong? Some comparisons like that within the person's body as well. So what we found was that these early farming women have very strong arms, stronger arms than living rowers and recreationally active non-athletes. They don't necessarily have any different in their leg bone strength. What kind of tasks would they be doing that would give them this bias towards strong arms? Agriculture prior to things like the plow, prior to mechanization, it all has to be done by hand. So Mm. that's tilling the field, planting the crops, harvesting the crops, and grinding the grain once they're harvested. Women in particular tend to do a lot of that grain processing in modern societies that's still prior to mechanization. And so we think... In these groups, that grain processing is probably causing a lot of these this high bone strength in the arms. Uh, it's, it's really laborious and kind of be sitting there doing a lot of repetitive movement with your arms, not a lot with your legs. Also, all so- women do all sorts of, of mm-hmm. things in agricultural communities when they're dealing with domesticated livestock, which these groups had. So milking and making textiles out of wool and all sort all sorts mm-hmm. of things to do with um, dealing with livestock. And what about the men then going back to the earlier finding that there was this change in their in their legs? Did they have a similar change in their arms? We have looked at asymmetry in the arms. So how much stronger is one mm-hmm. arm than the other? And what you see is no change through time. They're just always stronger on their right arm than their left on average. So most people are right-handed. And so it's likely what they were doing with their arms didn't really change the way their arms were loaded through time. They're just kind of always doing pretty right-dominant manual labor, not a lot of change. Um, Whereas women, you do see a big change. Women in the Bronze Age become very symmetrical And that ties in really nicely with our study now where you see not only are they getting symmetrical, they're getting extra shifting of loading onto the upper limbs. Hmm. So they have very strong arms and really weak legs. And so we think this is, again, reflecting they're just doing a ton of grain processing, just sitting there grinding grain for hours. And what about other places? You know, you're focusing on this very specific region um, of Europe. Has work like this been done elsewhere? You know, my understanding is that the Bronze Age and and all these different ages happen at different times for different places. So you can't really use dates. But has anyone seen this kind of progression elsewhere? Well, nobody's ever kind of looked at the prehistoric trends in relation to these living people. But there is a lot of regional difference, obviously, in what happened to people undergoing this sort of agricultural transition. But a lot of the time elsewhere in Europe, you do see similar trends. So what's going on in this small region of Europe seems to be similar to what's going on Mm -hmm. more broadly in Europe. And then there's been some study of um, populations starting farming in the Americas as well, eastern U.S., and that's really variable. Sometimes trends are vary just even within the East Coast. So 
it's really dependent on where you are and the culture at the time where you are. But in terms of Europe, what we're seeing in this region is likely pretty representative of the rest of Europe, at least at this time. Okay. Is that what you're going to look at next? Different areas, different time periods? What we're, we're really aiming to do is develop this um, living women's data set a little bit more. Because we have living people, we have muscle data from them. We can ask them about their hormonal contraceptive use. We can ask them about all sorts of things that affect bones that is information we just don't have mm -hmm. if we only have a skeleton from the past. So working on what can we learn about somebody when we just have their skeleton, we want to try and expand some of those things. Can we learn a bit more about their muscle or their soft tissue using this living women's data set to then try and inform what we can understand about the past? Great. Um, did you measure yourself? I did. <laughs> That's cool. So where do you stack up against a prehistoric farmer woman? I used to be a, a runner. Okay. That's why I'm in the study. I've been running for since I was 14. So I have in the study as a runner. I have way weaker arms, way, way, way weaker arms, uh, but my legs are stronger than the prehistoric women. That's so cool. Okay, Allison, that's all my questions. Is there anything I missed? Is there anything you else, else you want to mention? What I want to highlight is the importance of interpreting women's behavior in a female-specific context. The fact that historically we've been interpreting women's behavior by comparing them to men. We don't build bones in the same way as men. And so I think that we've been sort of systematically underestimating women's behavior because we see weaker bones in women and we assume it means they've not been doing as much. And that's not the case. When you interpret those bones relative to actual women, it's more of a, a fair comparison. And then we can start to really appreciate those hours of work <laughs> that agricultural women were doing that I think went underappreciated before. Thank you very much, Allison. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Allison McIntosh and colleagues write about bone, muscle, and history this week in Science Advances. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.